Hello, this is Tommy Peeler, and we're carefully examining the text. And today, in carefully examining the text, we want to look at Psalm 9. We encourage you, if you're in the position to do so, to turn your Bible there and look at the words of the text with us. But Psalm 9 and Psalm 10 may have originally been one psalm. In some of the ancient versions, like the Greek Septuagint and the Latin Vulgate, they were regarded as one psalm. You also notice that there is no title to Psalm 10. And in Book 1 of the Psalms, which composes Psalms 1 through 41, very few of the Psalms do not have a title or a heading. There are also linguistic connections between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. For example, the Bible speaks in Psalm 9-9 of the Lord as a stronghold in times of trouble. But Psalm 10-1 asks why God hides himself in times of trouble. And this is just one of many vocabulary links between Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. Now, for our purposes, it's not going to make any difference if they were originally considered one psalm or two. Lord willing, we'll look at Psalm 9 in this broadcast and Psalm 10 on one next time. But Psalm 9 opens up in verses 1 and 2 by a giving of thanks to the Lord. There are five first-person verbs used here to speak of thanking and praising God. Listen to the text. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. I will tell of all your wonders. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praises to your name, O Most High. These verses speak of thanksgiving and praise to God. I will give thanks to God. And not only will David give thanks, but David will give thanks with all his heart. Now, verses 3 through 6 describe the enemies. He said, when my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before you, for you have maintained my just cause. You sat on the throne judging righteously. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever, the text says. In verse 6, we read, the enemy has come to an end in perpetual ruins. You have uprooted the, mem the cities. The memory of the wicked has perished. In these verses, the text tells us that the enemies will stumble and perish. This word perish is a key word throughout the psalm. It is used in verse 3, in verse 5, in verse 6, and in verse 18. It's the same word perish that was used in Psalm 1 verse 6, where the way of the unrighteous or ungodly will perish. It was also used in 2.12, and now in this psalm it is used four times. 
The question is asked sometimes, is this written after a recent victory, or does this anticipate a future conflict? The verbs are imperfects, which often indicate a future conflict, but, but in this passage, it's very difficult, very difficult to tell. But what the text does emphasize is the psalmist knows that he will be victorious because the Lord is his judge. In verse 4, you have maintained my just cause, and you sat on the throne judging righteously. The psalmist hoped, David's hope, that he will prevail and that those who oppose him will be put down is built on the fact that God is setting upon the throne. In verse 5, you notice that the term nations, you have rebuked the nations, is used in parallel with the wicked. You have destroyed the wicked. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. And you have blotted out their name forever. To understand what a great danger that was to have one's name blotted out, you may remember the whole law about the Leveret law of marriage, about if your brother dies not having offspring, that the brother takes a wife so that he can produce a child for his late brother, that his name may not be blotted out. You see that in Deuteronomy 25 and verse 6, so that his name will not be blotted out. That was considered a great uh, a great wrong done to a person in Israel. But the text says that God is going to blot out the name of the wicked. And in verse 6, even their memory, the text says, will perish. Verses 7 through 10 will again emphasize the Lord on his throne and how he has established his throne for judgment. In verse 4, the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. The word for abide in verse 7 is the same word for sat in verse 4. You have sat on your throne judging righteously. Now the Lord abides forever. The Lord is judge. The Lord will always be judged. He has established his throne for judgment. In verse 8, he will, he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. The Lord also will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. God's judgment in verse 8 is characterized by righteousness. We see this in Psalm 9. We will see this also in Psalm 10. That text will emphasize the same thing, that God's righteousness is the attribute by which he judges the world. 
You notice in verse 9 that the Lord is said to be a stronghold for the oppressed. He is a stronghold. Some of your versions here may have the word refuge. Interestingly, this word is used 17 times in the Old Testament, and 13 of those times are in the book of Psalms. God as stronghold, God as refuge, is a key point in the book of Psalms. Where do we find our refuge? Where do we find our stronghold? Where do we hide when the world is encircling us and threatening to destroy us, David hid in the Lord. The Lord will be a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And the text speaks of those who know God's name in verse 10. Remember the Psalms have spoken of God knowing the way of the righteous. For example, Psalm 1, verse 6. But now the text emphasizes us knowing his name. Those who know your name will put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. The Lord has not forsaken those who seek him. The Bible says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Joshua 1, verse 5. So it is good for us to put refuge, make the Lord our refuge, to put our trust in him, to look to him as a stronghold in times of trouble, because he will not forsake us. Now, verses 11 and 12 direct praise to God because of God's goodness. In verse 11, sing praises to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Declare among the peoples his deeds. For he who requires blood remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. So sing praises to the Lord. The Lord is pictured as dwelling in Zion. And by the way, the verb translated dwells in verse 11, the same word translated abides in verse 7, and uh, sat in verse 4. The Lord, the Lord who dwells, who abides, who sits in Zion. But sing his praises, declare his works, declare his wonders among the people. The Bible tells us that God requires blood. Now, the word translated requires in verse 12 was the word translated seek in verse 10. In verse 10, the text spoke of us seeking God. In verse 12, the text speaks of God seeking blood. What does it mean that God is seeking blood? God will judge those who have taken life. That is the idea. Remember when Cain was killed, God said, the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground in Genesis 4 and verse 10. 
But the Bible tells us the Lord seeks blood. He seeks to punish those who kill and persecute the innocent. As David was experiencing mistreatment, he knew that he served a God who would avenge those who were innocent, a God who would not forget, as the text stresses in verse 12, the cry of those who are afflicted. He begs God in verses 13 through 16 to lift him up from death, to let the nations sink down. The text says, Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me, you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may tell of all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been called. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment in the work of your, his own hands. The wicked is snared. Verse 13 spoke of God begging God, be gracious to me. Be gracious to me. Some are afflicting him, as he states in verse 13. He begs God to see that affliction and to lift him up from the gates of death. The gates of death is a poetic way to refer to death itself. And he begs God to deliver him before his enemies kill him. Remember in verse 12, we said that God will avenge the blood of the innocent. God will, those innocent people killed, they will be defended, protected uh, by God. But the text tells us in verse 13 that David seems to be one of those, though some want to destroy him. But in verse 14, he begs God to lift him up uh, in the gates of the daughter of Zion. Did you notice how in verse 14, the gates of the daughter of Zion are contrasted in verse 13 with the gates of death? And while in verse 13, the enemy is pursuing him, hounding him, wanting to kill him and to bring him down to death, in verse 14, he wants to tell of God's praises in the gates of the city of Zion, and those nations that plot his destruction, he wants them to be destroyed. In verse 15, the nations have sunk down in the pit which they have made. They are sinking into the pit that they have dug for others. In verse 15, in the net which they hid, their own foot has been called. Sin is a boomerang that comes back to capture the wicked. The language of verse 15 is very similar to that of Psalm 7, verses 15 and 16. The pit, the net, are two images that the wicked have plotted, the wicked have used to plot the destruction of their enemies, but they will be the undoing of those who have dug the pit and those who have laid the net. 
the nations have sunk down into the pit which they made in the net which they hid their own foot has been caught and the Lord has made himself known. He has made himself known. He's executed judgment. Notice in this case that the way the Lord makes himself known seems to be tied to verse 15. In verse 15, the nations sunk into the pit they made. They were captured in the net that they laid for others. And when their plots come down upon their own heads, it is a powerful demonstration that the Lord is God. He has made himself known. He has executed judgment. In the work of his hands, the wicked is snared. In verses 17 and 18, the Bible tells us that the wicked nations will be judged while the righteous will be protected. In verse 14, the Lord will return to Sheol, even all the nations, the wicked will return to Sheol, even all the nations who forget God. The wicked will not always be forgotten nor will the hope of the afflicted perish forever. Have you noticed the word forget in Psalm 9? In verse 12, God does not forget the cry of the afflicted. In verse 18, the text tells us the needy will not always be forgotten. But in contrast to the fact that the needy and those who are afflicted will not be forgotten. Verse 17 stresses that all the nations that forget God will be turned to Sheol. God will not forget those who serve him, but those who forget him, they will experience disaster. Death is their destiny. Also, you see in verses 19 and 20, a plea to God, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. Often the Psalms call for God to arise in judgment. We've already seen this in Psalm 3, 7. In Psalm 7, verse 6, Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. In Asa's prayer in Second Chronicles 14 and verse 11, he emphasized that God, he begged God to give him deliverance, and he begged God that man may not prevail. This psalm does the same. Arise, O Lord, do not let man prevail. Let the nations be judged. And he begs God to let fear fall upon those who are wicked. And often God casts a great shadow of fear upon those who do wickedly. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations know that they are but men. This word for men is the same word in Psalm 8 verse 4. What is man that you are mindful of him, 
or the Son of Man that you visit him. In Psalm 8, the word emphasized how frail, how powerless man is. But here in Psalm 9, these frail, powerless men are seeking to dominate and oppress their fellow man. And the Bible begs God to arise and to strike fear in their heart that they may know they are men and not God. How do you sum up the message of Psalm 9? It's obviously much too complicated to do that easily. But one thing, we see God as one who is on the throne in verse 4 and verse 7. The king in the ancient Near East was the highest judge in the land, and the most difficult cases were brought to him in 2 Samuel chapter 12, in 1 Kings chapter 3. The Lord was the highest judge in the land, and he is king. But here in this passage, God is the judge. He is the judge who brings down the wicked and who vindicates the righteous. In verse 3, his enemies will turn back and stumble and perish. In verse 5, the nations will be destroyed and their names blotted out. In verse 6, the enemy will come to perpetual ruins. All of these are statements of God's judgment upon the wicked. In verses 15 and 16, God uses the plots and plans of the wicked to bring their own destruction. In verse 17, they will return to Sheol. And in verses 19 and 20, God will judge the nations and let them know that they are only men. God is also pictured as one who vindicates the righteous. In Psalm 9-9, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. In verse 10, he will not forsake the ones who seek him. In verse 12, he will not forget their cry. In verse 18, the needy will not always be forgotten, and his hope will not perish. Because the Lord is judge, ultimately wickedness will be brought down, and ultimately righteousness will triumph. I am glad that we live in a world that however strong the appearances are otherwise, I am glad we live in a world where God reigns and God will take care of all these things. Thank you for listening and may the Lord bless you.